Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. How would you like to be the subject of a case study? Probably dealt with case studies maybe at work or in an education you know, setting where you read a sort of scenario and there's some kind of problem there and you're supposed to read through it to kind of figure out either individually or as a team kind of what went wrong with these folks and what might we to do, how could we maybe do it better next time and what can we learn from this? Sometimes those scenarios are just fictitious, they're made up, and other times they're the recording of actual events, an actual scenario that happened to people, but the names have been changed to protect the, um, honestly, the guilty, usually. How would you like to be part of a case study that people were reading over and over again for the purpose of learning how to do it better next time and, and not to fall into those same problems? Well, uh, reading the book of 1 Corinthians is sort of like reading a series of case studies in, in the messiness of the local church. As the Apostle Paul lays that out week after week, perhaps it's felt like that as we've studied through this together over the last seven, eight months, that, wow, these people have, have some real messes going on in the church. I mean, last week we, we talked about drunkenness at communion. Anybody get drunk on our communion today? I hope not. I'm not sure it was possible. Uh, there, there, there was sketchy relationships going on in the church. There was messed up understandings of, of marriage. There, was, there were factions and infighting, all of these problems. And you just get the impression that the church back in Corinth uh, was a mess. And I, honestly, when you read the New Testament, you read about a lot of messes in the church. I mean, the Apostle Paul wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, the epistles, and uh, other apostles wrote some of them as well. But they're continually writing to correct all of these, these issues and these problems and these messes in the church. Well, the local church is a messy place. And it's sometimes been called the glorious mess. And if you're wondering what was wrong in that church or what's wrong in our church, consider uh, this from G.K. Chesterton, the, the Christian thinker in Britain uh, in the early 20th century. He was asked to write an essay along with a number of other uh, famous people, intellectuals of his age, answering this question, what is wrong with the world? It's a newspaper that asked him to do this. And it's reported that Chesterton submitted his entry. And it was this. What is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. If we're looking for the source of the messes in the local church, the reality is, the problem is me. I am. And maybe you'll be willing to say, you are as well. And the church is messy because each of us is here and we bring our messes to the church and to our gathering and to our life together as a local church. But I want to tell you that the church has sometimes been called the glorious mess and for good reason. It is a glorious mess. And as we've been going through the, the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, keeps bringing us back to our identity, our true identity. It's, it's the name of the series, living out our gospel identity, that, that who we are 
as believers and as the body of Christ is a result of whose we are. You have been, you have been bought by the precious blood, the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is our greatest identity. And so the place to be a mess, and the place to admit we're a mess, is among brothers and sisters in Christ who are sharing in our true identity in Jesus. That that is what defines us. And not the messiness of our lives. And that is who we are. As God is helping by his Holy Spirit uh, to clean up the messiness of our lives and as we're able to, to love one another in and through that. And so this morning, let's look at the glorious mess again and observe that in the local church 2,000 years ago in Corinth, but apply it, apply it to the church today in Sycamore and DeKalb County. And our process is going to look, I think, fairly, fairly similar as we kind of walk through this text together. We're going to begin with the mess, with the problem, as we do this little case study. Go from the identity, identifying of the problem to the solution that Paul presents by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then talk about the implications of what he presents. So problem, solution, implications. And let me ask for God's blessing on um, the ministry of his word. God, we pause and we thank you for the blessed communion we have. That as we partake of the bread and the cup, reminding us of all our Savior has done to make us one, that we might be a community. We thank you for that. We thank you that we are, by your Holy Spirit, both united through faith in Jesus Christ, united to him, our Lord and Savior, but we're also united to one another as the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And Lord, I would I just want to lift up this morning in particular uh, our brother um, Adam Lee and our sister Jory Lee as they uh, grieve the passing of Adam's um, young um, cousin uh, just a couple of days ago. And as the parents of that young 20-year-old man grieve his passing, and as his siblings do, God, we pray for much grace in that situation, and we pray that we might be able to, to care for our brother and sister who, who grieve today, and for others who are grieving among us, and others who have difficult situations in their lives. Lord, I pray that, that your word would refresh us this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would renew us as the word is preached and as we, as we hear it uh, God, that you would work out your ways and your purposes in us, that we might be a church where we are willing to bring the messiness of our lives uh, together because we are secure in who we are in Christ and what you're doing for your glory in us through your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would focus our attention on that today and pray in Jesus' name, amen. So on to another problem at the Church of Corinth. And it's right there in the first part of chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, now concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, the problem, the issue, the difficulty, the mess in Corinth that Paul now addresses has to do with spiritual gifts. Uh, spiritual gifts is a topic that the Apostle Paul writes about several times in the New Testament. Um, I think it's something that's kind of common lingo. Interestingly enough, if you go back in the church 40 or 50 years ago, not much was written or said about spiritual gifts. I looked up um, in a theology book I had on my shelf from the 1930s, and it's a systematic theology book that thick, and it said nothing about spiritual gifts. I went to the index of 
uh, John Calvin's Institutes, and I couldn't find anything about spiritual gifts. And so it's, it's not been a topic that the church has, has focused in on much until the last generation or two. But it's, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves, what is a spiritual gift? Well, a spiritual gift is any ability empowered by the Holy Spirit that a Christian uses to serve the larger body of Christ, to serve the church. That'll get filled out more as we get into the text today and as we go through the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Lord willing, next Sunday. But a spiritual gift is simply any empowerment, any ability to serve the local church that the Holy Spirit uh, grants to a believer in Christ. And Paul says, I've got to write to you now concerning spiritual gifts. Now, Paul's writing to them about spiritual gifts because they must have asked a question about spiritual gifts. We have a number of these instances in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul begins a new section saying, now concerning, now about this. And we know that when he says that, he is responding to something that they had written to him in their letter to him, a question that they had. There are some problems that Paul had kind of heard about through the grapevine that he addresses in this book, 1 Corinthians. There's other problems that they wrote to him about, and they had a question about them. And often they had an agenda, as we've noticed, behind that question. And so you'll notice that several times when Paul answers uh, questions about these concerns in the church, he'll say, yeah, you have a point there, but here's something you need to keep in mind. Yes, on paper that's true, but here's something you need to remember about how that works out for God's glory among his people in the local church. And we're going to see that again as Paul addresses the issue of spiritual gifts. So he's responding to a question they have about, about manifestations of the Spirit in their midst. And namely, we can put together, sort of retrace what their question was based on the book as a whole and what we know about what, what was going on in the church at Corinth. And the question they had to do with, was with believing that certain manifestations of the Spirit were more spiritual. Like if you had this particular gift or one of these particular types of gifts, you were a truly spiritual Christian. You weren't just, a, you know, a, a first class or, or, or a lower class Christian. You were, you were a first class Christian. You were at the top. And they placed a high priority on certain gifts of the Spirit, especially those that were more visible. And that seemed a little bit more spectacular and miraculous. As we're going to understand as we get into chapters 13 and 14, they especially thought a lot about the gift of speaking in an unknown or a spiritual or angelic language, something we call the gift of tongues. That was one of the biggies on their list. And if you remember from our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, that the sort of besetting sin of the Corinthian believers, their, their big hang-up was pride in spirituality. They were always trying to figure out who were the most spiritual among them. Who is truly spiritual? Who's, who's at that next level? Who are the more dynamic Christians? Who are the more anointed Christians among us? Who really has the Spirit and is showing it? And so they valued these types of gifts, gifts of speaking, gifts of teaching, gifts that showed superior wisdom. And that was sort of the, the, the root of the problem, but the way that it was working out among uh, God's people in Corinth was disunity. There was disunity, there were factions, there, there were envy going on in the church rooted in their pride and both 
a pride in one hand of having a certain kind of gift that said, hey, I'm more spiritual. But then the other side was a sense of inferiority. I don't, I don't have that gift. Maybe I'm just a rank and file Christian. I'm not as important, I'm not as useful to the body as those folks who have that more spectacular gift. So note how, how pride here is not just a private individual sin. When you have pride individually in our lives, it has, it has community, it has relational implications. If you're a prideful person, it will affect your relationships. If you're prideful uh, at work, certainly it's going to affect your relationships with your coworkers and sense of envy. If you're prideful in the home, if one spouse is prideful, that's going to, that's going to affect your marriage. If you're prideful, if you're part of a team and you're prideful and People think, hey, this person's just out there for themselves. It's going to bring the team down. And it certainly affects the local church. Where there's a sense of spiritual pride, of spiritual superiority in the local church and an accompanying sense of inferiority in the body, it's going to have a devastating effect on our relationships with one another and our ability to pursue the mission that God has given us to pursue together in our community. That was the problem here in Corinth. Let's take a look at how the apostle addresses the topic of spiritual gifts and begins to correct the problem. Take a look. Let me read the first three verses of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. The apostle writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I declare to you, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul makes it clear right away that this is no small matter. He he has this opening where he says, "I, I do not want you to be uninformed. I I do not want you to be uh, ignorant. He started out chapter 10 that way when he was addressing uh, the worship of idols and being in idol temples. This is really serious. When he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, he's not really saying so much that I, he's not saying so much that he doesn't think they don't already have the facts. It's his way of saying, this is really important. You can't miss this. You've got to get this straight. He goes on to say, yeah, there was a time in your life, your your life before Christ, when ignorance was bliss. Well, sort of. Well, not really, he says, because when you were pagans, you were were continually led away by by mute idols, idols that didn't speak, idols that didn't reveal anything to you, but you you were led away continually. Uh, This is a really chunky verse in the original language, uh, tough to translate, um, the ESV goes with, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Literally, it says, you were led astray, being led astray. Which I think is simply an emphasis to say, you were continually led astray. You were led astray, being led astray, all the time, toward mute idols. Something that you thought could do something for you. Any way that you thought you could get what you want... Worshiping whatever would please you and, and, and bring what you thought you should have, that's what you did. And you, you couldn't control it. Continually led away. And Paul says, but here's what you need to know. 
verse 3. I want you to understand that. There was a time you were ignorant, you were uninformed, but that time has changed. Something has fundamentally changed in your life. Here's what you need to know. Here is the test of spirituality. Here is the criterion that you can apply regarding who is spiritual in your midst and in your fellowship. If Jesus is nothing more than a curse word to you, you don't have the Spirit. But if you can make this confession that Jesus is my Lord, then you have the Spirit of God living in you. It is really that simple and it is really that profound. Once Paul says, you were led astray, your heart wanted what it wanted, you chased after mute, worthless, worthless things, and, and if you regarded Jesus as anything, he was a curse word for you. But now, now you are able to say with full conviction that Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my King. He is my treasure. Remember how Paul said this earlier in the book, in chapter 6, verse 9. He said, you know, writing to these same Corinthians, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some of you, but something has fundamentally changed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. A new reality has occurred in your life. You once were lost, but now you're found. That little word in our text this morning, were, is the perhaps the most grace-filled, amazing word in the whole uh, chapter here. You were pagans. You were led astray. But you now have a new identity in Christ. You belong to King Jesus. A miraculous transformation has occurred because the Holy Spirit has acted upon you. And friends, this is true of the, of the least spiritual, Paul says, among you. Whoever you think is the least spiritual it has the Holy Spirit of God. Because no one can truly say that Jesus is Lord. Sure, someone could mouth the words and say the words, Jesus is Lord. But no one can say that and truly mean it from the depths of their heart unless the Holy Spirit has transformed them from the inside out. And so this is the true test of of spirituality. Does a person have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them? Can they truthfully say that Jesus is Lord? And Paul is telling us, don't, don't, be, don't lose the wonder of, of this gospel transformation that God has brought about in your life. This is the preeminent evidence of the Holy Spirit. Forget for a moment about what kind of manifestation or what kind of gift of the Spirit you have been given or your brother or sister has been given. Focus in on this. This is the most important reality. That the Spirit has, first of all, given you the gift of, of new birth, of regeneration. Jim mentioned it as he led us in communion uh, this morning. No one can see the kingdom of God, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless he or she is born again. 
born from within, born by the Spirit. Regeneration is that, that act that the Holy Spirit does in taking our dead, lifeless hearts, have no room in them for God, who either outright say Jesus is accursed or by ignoring Jesus are saying the very same thing. And the Holy Spirit gives us life so that when we hear the gospel preached, when we hear the gospel shared that, that Jesus is the Savior, he is the one who can wash us clean. He is the one who can make us new. We, have, we repent and have faith in him. And remember what Jesus said for those, for his disciples in John chapter 14. Listen to these words, this promise of the Holy Spirit from John chapter 14. Some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. I will ask of the Father and he will give you another helper, another advocate to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Here's the difference between the world and Jesus' people. It is the Holy Spirit because the world neither sees him or knows him and you know him for he dwells in you and will be with you. And Paul writes about this in the book of Romans in chapter 8. What is the distinguishing mark of a believer? But if Christ is in you, how is Christ in me? How is Christ in a believer? Although the body is dead of sin because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. This is the great new covenant gift that God's people have. It is, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's burden for this group, first and foremost, and the Spirit's, I think, burden for us is that we recognize and take to heart that the, the work of gospel transformation, spiritual life, regeneration, saving faith, is the Spirit's greatest and most spectacular work. His most praiseworthy gift. Doesn't that bring this whole mess into perspective? Doesn't that, that cut out judgments about who has this gift of the Spirit and who has that gift of the Spirit? And do I have the really impressive gift of the Spirit or not? This levels all that. There's nothing more important, no test more important than whether or not someone has the Holy Spirit. And if someone has the Holy Spirit, it's because God has done the miracle of regeneration and the giving of faith in that person's life. And so how one shows the Spirit is not nearly as important as that they have the Spirit controlling them. So our estimations of one another ought to have nothing to do with a particular gift. It's not just the grace that saved me, but it's the grace that saved us all. C.S. Lewis once said that you and I have never met an ordinary human being. He writes this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most interesting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, 
you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you would now meet only in a nightmare. All day long, we are to some degree helping each other toward one or the other of these destinations. And in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are all mortal. And their life is to ours as that of a gnat. But it is with immortals that we joke and work with and marry and snub and exploit immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Do you believe that about your brother or sister in Christ with whom you worship, with whom you gather during the week, with whom you serve in our community? that they are the, the holiest object in your life. So Paul's solution to this problem of, of pride in spiritual gifts is that we view, we view one another through the lens of the gospel. The primary test, the primary criterion of spirituality is the Spirit's transforming work of grace. If you're able to say, Jesus is Lord, you have the Spirit. And we celebrate that in one another. It is, ought to be the controlling reality for our relationships in the local church. And that reality has implications. The implications are that we ought to value and celebrate both our unity. Notice how often the passage Paul says, the one in the same spirit. And our diversity, we've been given various and diverse gifts. There, there is something about the different types of gifts of the Spirit that we need to recognize. Now, next week, as we look at the end of the chapter, verses 12 through 31, we're going to focus in on the unity of the Spirit's work. And this morning, as we continue, we're going to look at the diversity of the Spirit's work in our body and how we can value the diversity it's one and the same Spirit who lives in all of us, but there is not a sameness to how He works in and through us to build the church. So let's look uh, at the rest of the text this morning, beginning at verse 4, chapter 12. Paul just said, okay, one Spirit, Jesus is Lord, we're united in Him, there's unity there, but, however, now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, uh, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit to another working miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions them to each, to each one individually, as he wills. 
So there's one spirit who unifies the church in her confession. Jesus is Lord. We have one confession. We have one Lord, one profession of faith. But that same spirit also distributes and diversifies his gifts to the members of the church, to us individually. And so we ought to value the diverse gifts of the Spirit. So let's look at what happens when we, as a church, value and celebrate the various and different and diverse expressions of the Spirit through our brothers and sisters. Three things from verses 4 through 11. First, when we value and celebrate the diverse expressions of the Spirit among us, it displays God's unique glory. It displays God's unique glory. Take a look at the slide uh, that has verses 4 through, or at least part of verses 4 through 6 on it. That one. Thank you. Interesting uh, to look at this verse. Paul repeats in these verses that there are a variety of gifts, a variety of services, a variety of activities. And that word varieties, that's a good translation. The point is that they're, they're not all the same. There are different gifts that are given. Uh, but it could also, in, and does mean, to distribute. There are different distributions or apportionments. Now, if something has been distributed, then clearly someone has, has given thought to how to distribute it. And look at who has given uh, the thought to, to, who, to how distribute, to distribute the gifts. There are different gifts, different services by the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. Do you see anything there? Do you see what I see there? Spirit. Whenever Paul says Lord, he means the Lord Jesus. And usually when we just see God all by itself, we think God the Father. And so Paul's point here is that these are gifts of the Spirit, these are manifestations of the Spirit, but it is, it is the entirety of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who distributes these uh, to us. Again, that idea of, of distribution, of, of apportioning, has, reminds us of thought and purpose. It's like when I was coaching baseball for my sons. I would have to distribute, there's only so many innings and so many positions on the, on the field. And you've got to get different kids into different positions. And I know the parents didn't really think there was a lot of thought behind it sometimes, or sometimes they questioned the thought behind it. But the reality was when, you, when a coach puts together a baseball lineup or, or another kind of lineup, there, there's distribution. There's this person does this at this time or this person's out there at that time. It's the same idea of, of distributing God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together have apportioned the gifts or the manifestations of the Spirit to his people for his glory. And notice that it isn't limited to gifts. There are gifts of the Spirit, but there are also services. And, and it's not just the singular word service, but, but services, which is a broader term, and, and implying not just a specific person with a gift, but different areas of service and different ministries within the church. And then finally, there are different activities, which is, could also be translated workings or effects. In other words, there are particular instances. It's the, 
It's the word that Paul uses when he talks about uh, the, the gift of healing. He actually says workings of healings, which indicates that maybe it's less about a particular person with the gift of healing, but instances of where God grants healing through someone here, and grants healing through someone else at another time. And all of these come under the term uh, manifestations, or just think about that term manifestation. To, to manifest something, uh, verse 7, is, is to make it known, um, to, to reveal. And so whether it's a gift, whether it's a service, whether it's an activity, they all come from the triune God, and the idea is that the Spirit is making himself known through God's people. And so the point of, of this section, verses 4 through 6, is that the, the variety and diversity of expressions of the Spirit uh, they're not the same. There's not sameness. And so therefore, there's no pride. There's no room for pride because I have a particular gift. Or there's no room for inferiority because I feel like I don't have the more showy gift. How does that work out in our midst, in this church? KBC, are there gifts and ministries of the Spirit that this body values more than others? Are there things that you're, you're, you're tempted to say, well, well, that person is more important in our body because they serve in that way or because they're gifted in, in another way? And, and that person who doesn't, well, we, we like them, but, you know, they're just kind of extra. There's no room for pride in, in any gift and no room for thinking another gift is inferior. They all come from the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they glorify Him. And they reflect both the, the unity and the diversity, uh, the, the perfect proportion of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's no room for envy or competition. Secondly, when we're valuing and celebrating the diverse expressions of the Spirit amongst us, it serves the whole church. It serves the whole church. Look at, um, let's put the list of spiritual gifts uh, from the Bible, that list up there. These are from the four main passages. Notice two of them are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are a couple of other passages that mention spiritual gifts in the Bible. And if you look at those, I think you'll notice a couple of things. First of all, there are some gifts that are repeated more than once in these lists. Um, prophecy is in all four of them, but in two of them, it's prophecy. In another, in the other two, it's listed as prophets. Also, there are things listed as gifts of the Spirit or manifestations of the Spirit, uh, in particular, that all Christians should have. I mean, shouldn't we all have faith? Uh, shouldn't we all give? Shouldn't we all demonstrate mercy? Shouldn't we all help people? I know you're probably looking at some of these gifts of the Spirit, maybe even curious, like, like yeah, what is that one? And, and how does that one work? And I, I haven't seen, seen that one in particular. And, and Paul's not so much interested in this passage anyway in explaining exactly what these gifts are as much as, as when you take the full, all of these lists of gifts in the New Testament, uh, you begin to understand that the, the gifts that are listed in the Bible are not exhaustive. Uh, there, there are other gifts, there are other ways that the Holy Spirit manifests itself beyond simply these. We're not limited to that. Sometimes maybe you've taken a, 
a spiritual gift inventory. I know I've done this a couple times, and that can be very helpful to sort of see which gifts of the Spirit kind of rise to the top. Uh, but it could be unhelpful if we limit ourselves only to uh, the particular gifts that are listed here. And so we need to be careful not to define the spiritual gifts uh, too narrowly. Uh, I was part of a church once that had a, a deaconess of aerobics, and apparently her spiritual gift was jazzercise. I don't, I don't really know uh, what the deal was with that. Uh, that may be slicing it a little bit thin, but she probably, she probably, she was a, she was a sister in Christ. She did have a spiritual gift. Uh, perhaps it was the gift of encouragement, and it came through leading people in aerobics. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I don't think we can define the gifts too narrowly. It's, if we go back to our original uh, definition, it's, it's any manifestation of the Spirit uh, by which we can serve the larger body as a whole. And notice from, from verses 7 through 10 that all of these, Paul lists all of these gifts kind of in, in rapid fire succession. Uh, but but his, bigger, his bigger points are that they're all gifts. They're all, they're all given. They're all, they're all grace. They're all uh, charismata. Paul uses that term. They're gifts of the Spirit. And so if you are a believer, you have a, a charismata. You are a charismatic because we all have gifts of the Spirit. And that term isn't limited to just some of the gifts. And notice that they're for the common good. They're for the building up of the whole body. And so our response ought to be to embrace the spiritual gift that God has given us. The way that the Spirit is manifest through our serving among God's people. That idea of, of manifestation, showing the Spirit. God's desire is to make Himself known through you, through the Spirit. And the Spirit's job, we know from Scripture, is to make Christ known. So we ought to embrace our gift and we ought to encourage others. Finally, valuing and celebrating the diverse expressions of the Spirit in one another shows the power of the Spirit. Verse 11, Paul says that all of these things are empowered by the Spirit. He wants to work through us. And it's our role to depend on God, to exercise faith, that God does truly want to work in and through us. Notice in verse 11, again, we have that word apportion or distribute. The Spirit apportions to each as He will. In other words, the Holy Spirit exercises His sovereignty in how He distributes or apportions His gift to us. Perhaps you've looked at the gift that you have the, the, the way of serving in the body that God has gifted you, and you've asked, um, you know, is there a gift receipt for this particular spiritual gift? There's not a gift receipt for it. And God's call is for us to have confidence that God has given us the optimal gift for the common good. And he's also given your sister or your brother the optimal gift of service for the common good. And so there's no room for pride. There's no room for feeling inferior. As we see the varied expressions of the Spirit in our brothers and sisters, rather we ought to thank God for what He's given them. And thank God, first of all, for the gift of the Holy Spirit Himself. 
the writer, the, the psalmist in Psalm 104 talks about God's manifold works. In wisdom, he says God has made them all. This is how our God is. He, he displays his, his manifold, his varied wisdom. And he's displaying that through the Spirit. The same Spirit who, who hovered over the waters of creation, through whom God made all things, lives inside of believers. Uh, the same Spirit who came upon prophets and priests and kings in the Old Covenant lives inside of all of those who can say that Jesus is Lord. But friends, here's something that, that not all the saints in the Old Covenant could say. Because it was mainly on those prophets and those priests and those kings that the Spirit came to and dwelt among. But the Holy Spirit is the, the great new covenant blessing of, of the era of Jesus' kingdom. That Jesus promised that he would pour out his Spirit on his people. And that he would fulfill those prophecies from, from the prophets like Joel saying, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And so as a follower of Christ in, in, this, in this new covenant era, this side of the cross, we have the great privilege that people like Abraham and Ruth did not have, and that the Spirit is dwelling in us. And so that ought to be our primary reason for thanksgiving as we look at one another. That is, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 that through the church, God is making known his manifold wisdom now, what was hidden is now being revealed. God's eternal purposes through his manifold wisdom through the Spirit. And so as we live together as the body of Christ, as we serve together, as we worship together, as we serve our community, we take joy in God's varied grace in one another. But more than anything else, we thank God that any of us could have the Spirit at all because it's a work of his transforming grace. Amen. God, we praise you for your wisdom in pouring out your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we praise you for how you reveal in and through the church uh, your, the dynamic of your trinity, of you as the triune God. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all revealed in the way we serve one another and we serve our world through the church. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at one another, that our, the chief reason uh, for joy and for praise would be to say that God, by your grace, my sister or my brother can say that Jesus is Lord. And then understanding that that is the primary criteria um, for testing whether the Spirit is there, that we can take joy and celebrate the diverse gifts that we have in this body. And Lord, help us by your Spirit to, to carry out the mission you've given us, each of us serving as you've equipped us. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.